Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Connecticut is one of the worst areas in the country for people looking for an affordable place to live. It shouldn't surprise anyone that a lack of affordable housing is one of the biggest barriers to truly ending homelessness in the state. Today we talk about this challenge with Richard Cho, the new director of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. In the last five years, during the former Governor Malloy administration, the state has seen chronic homelessness decline by 69 percent. Overall, homelessness has dropped a quarter over the last decade, but there's still work to do to reach everyone who needs help. And coming up later, we're going to hear how zoning laws in Connecticut towns and cities play a part. You can join us, too. The number 860-275-7266. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Dr. Richard Cho into our studio. Uh, Welcome to the show. Congratulations on your new position. Thank you. and Thank you for having me. I mentioned you're now the CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Uh, Prior, uh, you worked in New York City, and I'll be curious to hear a little bit about that. But also, you were deputy director at the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness during the Obama administration. So you've spent a chunk of your career focused in on housing policy. Yeah, pretty much all of my my career has been focused on housing and homelessness. And why why did you decide to focus in on this? That's a good question. I mean, I think... um well, to get a little personal, I mean, going back to my my roots, my parents were immigrants to this country. Uh, they established a home in, in the city of Chicago. Uh, I had an elderly grandmother who also immigrated with us uh, to, Chica- to uh, Chicago. I was the first uh, in my family to be born in the United States. And I think, you know, it made me think a lot about what it means to actually have a home uh, and to be displaced. Uh, even going back further, my parents were, uh, they grew up in what is now North Korea. Uh, they moved down to South Korea during the war. And uh, they were refugees themselves. And so for my entire life, I've always thought about what, is, what it means to be displaced from a home and then what it means to actually have a home and what it takes to actually um, have a true home for people. And I think that's part of what has inspired me to work in this field. Uh, when we think about um, housing, it really is a, a, a basic necessity to have a roof over your head. And when you don't have stable housing, it has repercussions in your life, whether uh, depending on uh, the place you can choose to live, uh, or the kind of school that you uh, send your children to, uh, your employment opportunities. Um, it's, it's very uh, fundamental uh, to uh, stability to have uh, a place to call home. Absolutely. I think, and I think those of us who have been blessed to actually have a home and never experience what it's like to be homeless, we may take for granted what it actually means to have a home. It's not just a roof over your head or having a place to store your stuff, uh, but it's also just, you know, how you center your community, uh, where you go to actually have stability. Um, it's so critical to mental health. It's so critical to just our, our basic uh, daily life. And, uh, you know, I think the healthcare sector is just n- only now uh, becoming more aware of, of how much uh, a person's health really is centered around having a stable home and all that, co- that comes with that. Over the last few years, as I mentioned, uh, Connecticut has made significant strides in reducing homelessness. I mentioned chronic homelessness. Can you talk about uh, what that means when we say chronic homelessness and um, how Connecticut was able to chip away, uh, actually pretty significantly, the number of people um, who are chronically homeless? Yeah. 
I, mean, I think one of the most important developments in the field of ending homelessness um, over the last maybe 20 years, really, is the realization that uh, homelessness looks different for different people, uh, and we need uh, different strokes for different folks. Uh, the idea of chronic homelessness was that uh, there's a subset of people experiencing homelessness who have more severe challenges, more severe disabilities, uh, and where uh, because of those disabilities, they have a harder time resolving homelessness. Um, homelessness is not a sort of static um, problem. It's actually a dynamic one. Um, there's new people who fall into homelessness. There's people who resolve their homelessness. Uh, and there's people who need help in resolving their homelessness. People experiencing chronic homelessness are those that have those disabilities where without you know, some kind of intentional help, uh, which usually comes in the form of rental assistance coupled with wraparound services that help them not only find a home, but help them keep that home, that's really what it takes uh, to end chronic homelessness. And so there's been a big focus here in Connecticut, as well as nationally, on trying to focus on that subset uh, and figure out you know, how do we provide that uh, uh, wraparound services coupled with housing, which we call supportive housing uh, for that population. And then for everybody else, um, we've been coming up with new strategies and new innovations for how do we help people resolve their homelessness quickly. You mentioned permanent supportive housing. I was thinking about the goal. Uh, Connecticut was, I think, uh, the second state to um, have supports in place to say that we have ended veteran homelessness in the state. So when Connecticut says that, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, there will uh, never be another veteran homeless. But explain what that means for Connecticut to say, you know, we've got the supports in place to keep this from happening for this specific population. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the simple way to think about it uh, and the way that we define uh, ending homelessness, uh, and I had a chance to work at the federal level uh, on actually trying to define what it means nationally to end homelessness, uh, and including for veterans. Uh, it really means, you know, uh, we know that um, the challenges of our economic realities mean that people will um, sometimes lose their homes. Uh, but uh, we don't have to accept the fact that uh, that puts them in some kind of permanent situation. Uh, the way we think about it is uh, we will have ended homelessness when we've made it rare, uh, meaning it only happens uh, in very rare instances uh, that when it uh, is brief, um, that we can actually really shorten the length of time that people experience some kind of housing loss or housing crisis uh, and non-recurring um, or a one-time experience. Basically, uh, we're going to try to shrink the number of people who fall into homelessness. Uh, we're also trying to try to make that experience as short as possible, meaning we'll help them get um, connected back to permanent housing as quickly as possible. Uh, and last, uh, we'll make sure they don't come back to homelessness once they're rehoused. I want to learn more about the supports in specific communities. Uh, but again, my guest today is Richard Cho, the new CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. You can join our conversation, too. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, tell us more about what you did on the federal level. Yeah, so I came in in 2013. It was the beginning of this uh, uh, President Obama's second term. Uh, there was a big focus on implementing what had already been created, which was the federal plan to end homelessness, known as Opening Doors. Uh, so I had the chance to come in uh, and be one of uh, part of a small team. Uh, I worked for the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness. Uh, we were a tiny federal agency, about 20 people, and our uh, mandate was huge. We were uh, given the task of trying to coordinate 19 different federal departments all row together to, uh, to really implement the federal plan and achieve an end to homelessness in the country. Um, really a kind of an incredible honor uh, to, to serve in that capacity. Uh, my job uh, was really to... Uh, uh, really focus on the Washington, D.C.-based um, policy work. How do we get the federal agencies to contribute their resources, um, provide policy guidance uh, and direction to really um, uh, leverage the entire 
resources that the federal government has at its disposal uh, towards the goal of ending homelessness. How challenging is it when you talk about uh, multiple uh, federal departments? Uh, uh, often our, our uh, opinion in the public is that, you know, a federal government is just a, a bureaucracy with uh, many layers and doesn't get a lot done. So explain to me how you how under the Obama administration you, you saw this specific uh, uh, progress happening. I mean, how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, I think so much uh, was already set up when I got there. Um, having uh, a president uh, and a first lady and the whole White House supporting this effort um, meant a lot. It just brought all of the agencies to the table at the at the highest levels of leadership. So I had a chance to work with um, cabinet level secretaries, um, agency department heads uh, to really uh, um, secure their commitment, uh, and that really trickled down to all of the the career staff. You know, the bulk majority of the staff in federal agencies are. Uh, career civil servants, um, and they they do what their job is, uh, uh, but they also take um, direction from leadership. And so, when their cabinet secretary says we're going to prioritize ending homelessness, uh, you know, uh, it really it changes the equation. It changes what they focus on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that 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 sort of priority was already set when I got there. Um, the challenge was really there's so many different cultures. Um, the you know the federal Department of Health and Human Services they have a very different culture from the uh, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, VA has a very different culture, and trying to get all those agencies to work across their cultures, some of it was just about um, uh, translating, uh, really, and helping them understand um, where each other were coming from. Uh, That was a lot of my job, was really uh, brokering those connections, uh, helping to be the system translator. Um, I speak um, healthcare, but I also speak housing. Um, I learned a lot about how the Veterans Affairs uh, uh, Department works as well. Uh, you mentioned opening doors, and this is something that uh, Connecticut uh, was able uh, to use to help uh, uh, change what the face of homelessness looks like in our state. So how, did you, how in the sense, did that happen? I mean, obviously, federal dollars is important to support the work, but to Im- ensure that the money going to specific communities is being used wisely. Yeah, I mean, Connecticut was... Uh, you know, when I was at the federal government, we didn't have favorites per se, uh, but we did we did really like what was happening in Connecticut. And, and one of the reasons was because they aligned um, their st- uh, Connecticut has aligned its statewide plan to end homelessness uh, based on the federal plan opening doors. So there was an opening doors Connecticut plan. Uh, when uh, we uh, issued guidance or direction on, on how to set priorities, how to use federal dollars in, in smarter ways to be more efficient in uh, prioritizing certain populations over others, Connecticut always fell in line. Uh, and followed that guidance. Um, when we actually created a definition for what it means to end veteran homelessness, uh, when First Lady Michelle Obama put out a challenge to all mayors, county leaders, and governors across the country to commit to ending veteran homelessness, Connecticut was the first one of the first states to raise their hand, and Governor Malloy, um, in particular, um, said that he he would get it done. Uh, and so, uh, it was always uh, fantastic working uh, with Connecticut and uh, having Connecticut uh, really align itself with the federal efforts to end homelessness. So how does your focus, your work change now as the new leader of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness? Because you've worked on the federal level. So uh, tell us about the work that you're doing within this organization now. Yeah, boy. I mean, I uh, at the federal level, it's one thing to, to talk about uh, the, the kind of policy directions that should take place. It's a whole other thing to actually implement them. Um, you know, at, at the federal level, my job was to really um, you know, not only coordinate across federal agencies, but provide communities with what the direction should be. And a lot of that was around this idea of housing first. Uh, that one of the most important things that we've learned about ending homelessness is that, you know, people have mental health challenges, they have addiction issues, uh, they have a lack of employment, but fundamentally, how do you end homelessness is to give people housing. Um, it sounds kind of 
uh, so you know, intuitive, but it uh, it would it took the field twenty years to get to that realization of that housing first, um, and then using that housing as a platform to help people address their other issues. Uh, you know, now that I'm in Connecticut, uh, now I'm faced with the task of how do you actually implement that? What does that look like? Uh, and that gets down to operational issues. Like how do you help people who are actually in uh, immediate need? What do you do for them? Um, who do they call? How do they get assistance? Those are the questions that we're now grappling with. Uh, we're a small state, but there are 169 towns, cities, uh, hamlets. Uh, and and uh, I'm curious, with all of the different nonprofits within certain uh, parts of the state, I think that the term, uh, the acronym was CANS. Can mm-hmm. you describe how all of these uh, organizations are working? So if they hear someone is homeless, say, in Middlesex County, um, how they can get them uh, into a place? Yeah, great, great question. I, You know, um, I think this has been one of the game-changing things for our efforts to end homelessness in Connecticut. Um, it used to be that if you're homeless, you knew, you didn't know where to go for help. Uh, you would hear from word on the street that there might be a shelter open or there might be housing programs that you could apply for. But you know, a person experiencing homelessness uh, facing that immediate crisis would actually have to figure out how to navigate all those different systems. They often had to apply to 20 different programs to try to get help, um, be on 20 different waiting lists for housing. Uh, we've changed all that over the last several years here in Connecticut um, through the course creation of these coordinated access networks, or CANs as we call it for short, uh, where we've organized the set of homelessness providers across, homeless service providers across the state into these uh, regions, uh, these coordinated access regions, uh, where within those regions there's a central point of intake. Um, if anyone's experiencing homelessness, they can call the state's 2-in-1 system, who then connects them to their the regional CAN. Uh, then the CAN actually has a uniform set of assessments uh, to actually determine who needs help uh, the most and what type of help that they can provide. And now we're actually um, able to look at data on not only who's calling for help, um, but how quickly are we able to get them help, how are we matching them to the right types of housing and services, uh, and and how quickly are we able to resolve homelessness. It's created not only a kind of coordination across the state, uh, but also created new levels of accountability where the nonprofit sector, uh, where is it, you know, we used to be able to say, oh, um, well, we may be serving this person or not, and, and nobody actually knew who was serving them. We can actually say who's accountable for serving Richard Cho, who's in need of housing assistance, and where is he on the waiting list, and how quickly are we moving him uh, into housing? Richard Cho is in the studio with me. He's the new CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Um, we were talking about uh, Connecticut's uh, success in uh, uh, ending veteran homelessness. So what did uh, Connecticut need to have in place to get to that goal? And how does that then um, uh, uh, influence how you're uh, looking at other populations in the state who are homeless? Yeah. Uh, you know, we're modeling all of our efforts on uh, on the, the strategy that we used to end veteran homelessness where we were incredibly successful. You know, veteran homelessness is one area where, uh, you know, it was sort of a perfect alignment of stars. You had congressional support uh, within Congress who provided new federal resources to end veteran homelessness uh, in ways that they've never done for other populations. Uh, you have a system in the, the federal VA uh, uh, that's accountable for the outcomes for veterans. Um, but uh, even with those resources and with uh, the VA being on the hook uh, to try to end veteran homelessness, uh, we weren't seeing uh, communities really achieve that goal. Uh, when the first lady, Michelle Obama, launched the mayor's challenge to end veteran homelessness, uh, the idea was, you know, how do we um, engage jurisdictional leaders, uh, governors, and mayors to actually commit to this goal? And when it was that uh, Governor Malloy um, actually uh, raised his hand and said he would join uh, this challenge uh, to end veteran homelessness in Connecticut, it really rallied all of the, the partners and it k- kicked everything into high gear. So um, all the providers, organizations, uh, the organization I now lead, CCH, 
you know, we all got together uh, to look at um, how are we doing in terms of keeping veteran homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring, and, and using performance metrics to really drive an end to veteran homelessness. And uh, that's what we've done. Uh, we've created a system where uh, we're not only identifying veterans immediately who become homeless, but we're actually able to uh, provide them with um, either short-term assistance in the form of uh, rapid rehousing um, or permanent supportive housing or, or other types of interventions to help veterans uh, resolve their homelessness as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. you know, uh, trying to get that uh, the, the, the time that they spend homeless down to something like 60 days, 45 days. Mm. Um, when I was thinking about how uh, the federal government in the last few years has really um, prioritized uh, meeting the needs of veterans, and so it, it's helpful when uh, HUD is able to allocate more uh, housing vouchers for a specific community to house veterans. But what about other vulnerable populations, uh, families, or I'm just curious, um, you know, how... Um, you know, certain, it, it appears that, you know, there's kind of like a priority list in a way. And right. so uh, for the people that are kind of lower on the priority list to uh, be able to also access uh, these vouchers to find uh, housing. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, we're, we're trying to recreate the kind of resources we have uh, for veterans uh, for other populations. Um, unfortunately, there hasn't been the kind of political support to provide dedicated housing and services resources for uh, uh, families with children who are homeless, um, or youth and young adults who are homeless, or or people with disabilities, um, but we're trying to recreate that and patch that together through a variety of state and and federal resources. Um, I mean, I'd say that uh, the challenge with that is, um, you know, uh, you know, with having the the, the political support around veterans, um, you have that kind of public sympathy, and I think that what we would hope to see is that. Um, our having ended veteran homelessness serves as a proof point to show that we can actually end homelessness. We don't have to accept the fact that homelessness is a reality. It's something that's just fixed in the landscape. Uh, and if we can actually do this by leveraging other resources in the other sectors, uh, we could do this for all populations. Richard Cho is the new CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. He's here with me, uh, Lucy Nalpathanchel, on where we live. Um, before co- coming into this new Connecticut role, Cho was a deputy director at the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness during the Obama administration. Uh, coming up after the break, we're going to talk more about uh, efforts to support all different populations here in Connecticut. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And here's our studio number, 860 This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today I'm talking with Richard Cho, the new CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. And we've been talking again about the progress in the state, uh, Richard, but uh, there was that uh, report, the federal uh, report earlier, uh, I think it was actually late last year, um, that found that actually Connecticut did see a spike in the number of homeless individuals in Connecticut uh, in 2018. And why was that and what was, how, what's been done? Yeah, thank you for asking them about that. <clears throat> you know, we actually uh, at, every year in January conduct an annual count of the number of people experiencing homelessness. It's called the point in time count. And that, in fact, uh, we'll be doing that again this year on January 22nd. We're looking for volunteers, so definitely would love to see more people come out to help us canvas the streets and actually get an accurate count. And that provides a, a comparison of, of how we're doing year to year. Um, and it's the one uh, measure we have uh, that uh, is consistent with how other communities measure homelessness. So. Um, while it doesn't provide a picture of all homelessness, it gives us that one-night snapshot that enables us to say, how are we doing from year to year and as well as uh, how is Connecticut compared to other states? You know, we found in the January uh, 2018 point-in-time count 
uh, that the, the number of people experiencing homelessness on that single night was 3,383. Um, we also had uh, a situation where uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, a number of people were evacuated by uh, FEMA to the state of Connecticut, uh, and where uh, there was an emergency sheltering uh, program provided, um, putting many people into hotels or motels uh, on a temporary basis. Uh, and we were required by the federal government to make sure that we report anybody who's in a temporary housing situation who's experiencing homelessness. Uh, we made sure to distinguish that number. It was about uh, close to 600 uh, people uh, who had been evacuated from Hurricane Maria uh, and were in that emergency sheltering program. Uh, so when HUD put out their report, and often takes them many months to actually put out their final report and aggregate all the numbers that they get from the state, uh, they put out the total number, and they didn't uh, disaggregate the Hurricane Maria evacuees from the other people who are experiencing homelessness in Connecticut. So uh, the number that we report is that it was 3,383 people uh, experiencing homelessness on that single night, which was relative, which was pretty much flat from 2017. We didn't see a significant year-to-year uh, -year decrease. Uh, but I want to make it clear, uh, that spike was really about that uh, Hurricane Maria evacuee uh, sheltering program. Can I ask if there was, uh, if the federal government hadn't uh, responded with uh, resources eventually, um, because uh, we have a large Puerto Rican population in the state of Connecticut, what would have Connecticut done? Yeah, I think uh, what we would have seen is that many of them, you know, and, and many uh, individuals did uh, end up doubled up with their family members, uh, but many probably without having that kind of uh, FEMA assistance uh, would have probably ended up in, in our uh, regular emergency shelter system, uh, which would have created uh, significant problems. You know, we would have had uh, a shortage of shelter beds. We already have, um, you know, often not enough um, shelter capacity in our state um, to, to help alleviate the immediate crisis of homelessness for people. But you could just imagine how, how much more flooded that system would have been when we, you know, shelter providers were trying to respond to people who've been uh, displaced from their homes uh, due to a storm, but well, as well as people who've been displaced uh, for other reasons here in the state of Connecticut. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Mario is calling from Bristol. Mario, go ahead. Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to comment here. Uh, I was homeless once, and I just wanted to briefly, I'll be as quick as I could, um, talk about that for a moment, because I understand what Mr. Chow's talking about is has a lot of advantages. And I kind of think that the experience that I had maybe might add to some of that. Okay, so I came out here in 1969 to go to college. My aide failed to come through. So I was booted off campus, and all of a sudden I find myself in a town that I knew nothing about because I was coming from another state. And I'm there, well, I'm not going to go home. Okay, that was out. Okay. And so, but I was homeless. I was living in a park under bush, okay, in the evenings, cleaning down at the stream. But one thing that I figured out was I had to get out of this situation real fast. Okay. And it took time to get out of it. But I figured, well, what was I going to do? You know, and one thing I figured out was back then, they had community grocery stores where you worked in in exchange for food, okay? In order for me to do that, you know, I had to change my clothes, you know, versus looking like a street drag, okay? Shave down at the stream and try to make myself look and appear normal so that I could interact. And you have to have a certain drive. Mm. I see that a lot of homeless people don't have any esteem. They think they're low lowlifes. 
and they have psychological and health problems that hold them back. And a lot of people just don't trust them. Mario, can I ask uh, what helped you then uh, uh, find a place to live eventually? Okay. This is another part of the strategy that I had besides figuring out how to get food through the community centers was I had to find a place that wasn't normal, like say a third floor apartment in a home where a lady or family was renting out. Okay, because back then you could get a rent for like $26 a week or a month sometimes, okay, just because the families trusted you. So I start going to the local health food stores where they had bulletin boards looking for apartments for rent, okay, rooms for rent. And then I had to convince these people that I was trustworthy enough to live there. And for that, I needed a job. And even that was tough. So, Mario, you keep talking about back then, so I'm curious from, you know, still living in Connecticut, I'm hearing about different approaches to uh, ending homelessness. Are policy leaders on the right track, or what can they do more to help uh, people who find themselves homeless? Well, the reason why I want to start this scenario about myself was to show that facilities are needed. A person has to be able to, first of all, have the confidence and the esteem to walk into a facility and say, I need help. And if those facilities aren't there, then guess what? That person continues to be homeless. And that's where the support from the government and the communities come in. And that's one of the lacking prospects that a person facing homelessness has. Now, I became successful. I put my kids through college. I own my home. It's paid off. I, you know, I did rather well, okay? I was a builder, a residential carpenter. And once a person loses grip of their own reality that they have no security, they're done. Yeah. Well, Mario, and that's where these facilities mm-hmm. come in. We thank you for calling, and we're glad to hear that uh, you're doing well. I wanted Richard Cho to respond to your story because I, I think uh, it... it um, introduces the next question I have, which is uh, perceptions that community has about uh, people who are homeless and uh, some of the barriers, uh, simple things we may take for granted that can help someone get a foot in the door and a chance of finding a job and stable housing. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I actually really appreciate Mario's call because uh, his story illustrates what we've seen with a lot of people experiencing homelessness, which is, you know, there's this public perception that people are, you know, I'd say like lazy uh, that they're doing it to themselves, that they're choosing to be homeless. Um, Mario shows that you know it can happen to a lot of people, even those who have drive and ambition and who are trying to work, right? Uh, um, difficult circumstances happen. And that's what we see with the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness. Many of them are working. Many of them are really trying to get uh, back into the, uh, on their feet. But, you know, it's not easy to find a job. It's not easy to find um, housing. It's certainly not easy to have uh, again, many of them are working, but have enough housing, uh, enough income to afford housing on this on this market. Um, and you know, I don't know exactly when Mario experienced uh, homelessness himself, but uh, back then the cost of housing was nowhere near what it is today. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I want I think his story uh, perfectly illustrates what we've seen. Uh, what we've been doing as the homelessness um, service system in Connecticut is really trying to create a situation where, um, for the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness who have that drive, ambition, who are already working, you know, how do we not have to make them uh, run around and navigate that these systems on their own, but how do we do that faster for them, and how do we provide them with that little bit of help to just to help them get back on their feet? Again, 
there are people with disabilities who need more than that. Uh, but for the many, many people, I think it's really about helping them uh, do what Mario did, but faster, not having to run around in circles. Let's talk about cost because uh, you brought it up and it's uh, a really important uh, part of our conversation uh, this hour and the fact that Connecticut is a very expensive state. Um, uh, research uh, and studies have shown that you have to make $24 uh, an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment in the state. And that is uh, not attainable for a lot of people. So how do we uh, make it more affordable and what are some of the challenges Richard? Yeah, I mean, that's that's challenging. Uh, you know, we have a dynamic in Connecticut, uh, kind of the perfect storm, frankly, where uh, we have uh, huge, dis, you know, income uh, inequalities uh, in the state of Connecticut. Uh, and we have a housing market that isn't responsive to, to the demand that's out there at all levels of the market. Um, we have a housing market that tends to uh, respond more to uh, people who are, um, you know, speculating on the, on the private market um, or uh, have multiple homes and or people uh, have you know their own single family home and a, and a, and a second home uh, or where they're using their home to rent it out for Airbnb and things like that. So uh, you we you know our market is not keeping up with what the housing needs are certainly. Uh, and so we have um, the cost of housing that is far outpacing what anybody can afford. I mean, you could we could have people work uh, two hundred um, hours a week. Um, at a minimum wage, they still wouldn't be able to afford uh, a, a one-bedroom apartment in the state of Connecticut. Um, so I think that's what we'll see. You know, we could reach the point, and we're getting close to this, where we could have the most efficient um, house, rehousing system in the state of Connecticut. Anybody falls into homelessness, we could provide them with a variety of types of assistance to get them back into housing within 30 to 45 days. But in some ways, it feels like we're bailing out a sinking ship if we don't stop the inflow of people. Um, right now, on any given month, and now we have real-time data that can tell us this, uh, about 200 people are um, resolving their homelessness every month. We're helping people exit homelessness through a variety of types of assistance into housing. Uh, but another 200 people are coming into homelessness. Um, and that is a, really a function of the of the housing market. And so I think um, we'll do more and we'll continue to work hard to try to rehouse and help people resolve homelessness. But we have to figure out how do we um, stop that uh, housing displacement from happening in the first place. Uh, you've mentioned uh, providing people assistance a few times. And I'm curious, uh, what happens to the person who has a good paying job? And then one day they may lose that job, but they still have a mortgage to pay, children, uh, food to put on the table, education costs. Um, when we talk about assistance, are people, uh, uh, I guess, cut out from that if they you know, were making a certain wage versus someone who's within a certain poverty line? Yeah, I mean, we've, we have a, uh, programs like Rapid Rehousing, uh, Rapid Exits now. Uh, we have a, a program. We're also doing some work to um, divert people from shelter. Uh, because we've created this um, state 2 in one system that serves as the one single point of intake for any kind of homeless assistance or housing assistance, uh, you know, people, anybody who is seeking shelter can call 211. And so now we actually are able to identify families who are on the brink of homelessness. And so we've been able to, uh, through a project called Be Homeful, um, raise some private dollars to create a shelter diversion fund that enables us to provide that emergency assistance to families who are on the brink of homelessness and before they even have to come to homeless shelters. Uh, and I think the question is really how do we sustain and grow that? Um, uh, there was a bipartisan housing commission uh, that took place uh, several years ago, uh, and they issued a report. and. Basically, they, their job was to figure out what does America's housing system look like. Uh, and one of, and two of the recommendations was that any family who's experiencing homelessness should get rental assistance. Uh, but they also said that uh, we should create an emergency fund for families who um, lose their job or 
fall behind in their mortgage payments or their rent payments uh, or are at risk of eviction, uh, that can help them with that uh, resolution. I think that's kind of the vision of what we're trying to create in Connecticut is a system where we can provide that emergency assistance for any family who's on the brink of homelessness to stop that inflow into the system. We've talked about uh, veteran homelessness. Uh, You mentioned um, ways to help families dealing with homelessness. But what about um, specific uh, to youth uh, for whatever reason are finding that they're living uh, on the streets by themselves? Um, What is Connecticut doing to address youth homelessness? And who are the youth most at risk? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we conducted a study. Um, the, one of the challenges with youth is is that they don't experience homelessness in the same ways. They don't come show up at adult homeless shelters. Uh, they don't tend to live outside on the streets. What they'll do is um, find other situations uh, to uh, uh, mostly where they're couch surfing. They'll, they'll move around from either their friends or, or friend, uh, family or friends um, uh, house to house until they, they burn, burn out of options, run out of options. Um, many of the youth also are fleeing um, either uh, um, uh, domestic violence uh, or um, abusive situations, or in some cases, family conflict because of their, uh, you know, their uh, sexual orientation. So um, many uh, youth and young adults are LGBTQ, uh, and they're being uh, uh, they're leaving their homes because of that family conflict. Um, so wh- you know, one of the challenges um, with ending youth homelessness is even finding those youth because they're not showing up at the same places where adults uh, and older people who experience homelessness show up. And so a lot of what our work is about is trying to uh, get all the various places, uh, schools, uh, you know, community um, organizations uh, where you can actually find uh, youth and young adults who are experiencing homelessness to better um, identify youth who may not even themselves um, identify with the term homelessness, uh, but who are certainly homeless. Uh, we also uh, recently won a $6.5 million award from, from HUD um, where they're uh, funding a youth homelessness demonstration program. And that's really uh, enabling us to create Again, the same types of uh, programs that we've had for veterans, that we've been creating for families and for individuals, uh, for uh, youth and young adults. So we're creating uh, longer-term housing um, options as well as rapid rehousing, rapid exit, and shelter diversion programs for, for youth as well. I wanted to ask you, uh, when we talk about the federal government, again, you worked under the Obama administration, uh, but now under the Trump administration, how um, have uh, any support, has it changed at all for communities um, related to um, the federal dollars that are going to uh, provide for uh, housing assistance or rental assistance? Yeah, I mean, that's actually more of a complicated story than you think. Uh, Certainly, Homelessness is not a priority for the current administration in Washington as it was under the Obama administration. Um, You don't have uh, the White House probably asking as much about how we're doing on our efforts to end homelessness. Um, On the other hand, you know, when I was at the federal government, we continued to push for more resources. Even in a time of sequestration, uh, I I joined the administration in 2013. Uh, and we were under sequestration budget. So agencies were being asked to give a 5% cut across the board. And even then, we we tried to push um, Congress to provide more resources to end homelessness. And with the split Congress at that time, uh, we didn't get those resources. Ironically, uh, in the last couple of years, um, with the various um, CRs that have been passed, um, there have been more dollars for homeless assistance grants uh, um, as uh, the Republicans have asked for more uh, defense spending. Uh, Democrats have asked for more uh, discretionary spending for for programs. We've gotten some increases. So, um, so actually, you have, there has been some more funding. Uh, that said, it's been uh, certainly more difficult to get the kind of guidance and direction that we want from the federal government to really help uh, engage communities. But you know, um, I don't see Connecticut taking its foot off the pedal in any way. Um, we are still driving forward with the goals of ending homelessness, uh, particularly to end family and youth homelessness by the year 2020.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is uh, Dr. Richard Cho, new CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. We're going to continue our conversation after the break, and we're going to explore the barriers uh, still in the state of Connecticut that prevent more affordable housing in communities across the state. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been focusing in on how the state can continue to reduce homelessness. In studio with me is Richard Cho, new CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Now, we briefly touched on uh, the issue of affordable housing uh, in Connecticut. And when we think about affordable housing, uh, one of the barriers uh, is uh, the access to um, affordable housing in communities. And communities are the ones that come up with zoning laws. And so uh, joining our conversation now is Fanula Darby Hutchinson. Community Education and Outreach Coordinator for the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Uh, Fanula, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy, for having me. So let's talk about um, affordable housing uh, in the state. How much do we have and how much do we need? Clearly, we do not have enough. Um, Ideally, we would like every community in Connecticut to have a minimum of 10% of their housing stock to be considered affordable based on sort of the median income of the area. So that affordable housing is going to look different across every region in the state. Um, However, it is an extremely low number of communities that have that affordable housing, and that affordable housing is concentrated in our urban areas and in the areas that you think it would be in New Haven, Hartford, New London, Groton. Stanford. Exactly. So that's sort of where we're at with that. So in the suburbs, uh, so to speak, uh, what are some of the barriers to getting 10% of housing to be affordable? I'd say first and foremost, it's exclusionary zoning. And before I kind of dive into what exclusionary zoning is and how that's controlled at a local level, I think it's really important that we frame this as a civil rights issue. Um, so our state is extremely racially segregated and is one of the most racially segregated states in the country. And that is absolutely a result of exclusionary zoning. So in several suburban communities that are predominantly white communities, we have zoning policy that does not allow for a variety of housing types, which means that If a zoning ordinance suggests we only permit single-family housing in this community, that is going to limit an entire population of people from even accessing that community. So, uh, Richard, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the this uh, this disparity, this lack of uh, multifamily apartments in suburbs, and what can be done when we have a state that um, it's the very decentralized and local towns have a lot of, of control in what kind of uh, development they even allow uh, in their towns? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, it's not only a lack of multifamily um, housing development that's that's allowed because of zoning and because of density restrictions. Uh, it's also uh, a function that you know a lot of uh, developers aren't incented uh, to create housing at the lowest end of the market, which is really what people experiencing homelessness need is is housing that's affordable to people who are earning uh, what we call 30 percent uh, or below of area median income. Uh, a lot of the affordable housing that's created is still for people who are earning fairly moderate incomes. Uh, and so when we say affordable housing, we I think we need to be clear about what we mean um, as well. Um, I, you know, I, I happen to have the, the chance to serve on the Lamont uh, transition team's um, housing policy committee. And that was a question that the, the committee was really grappling with was how do we just increase the uh, you know amount of development that's happening of, of housing in general 
uh, but also in particular multifamily rental housing uh, and household housing that is affordable um, across all income spectrums. Uh, and you know, I think there were a variety of different strategies created, um, but a lot that is about how do we um, leverage uh, um, and create incentives for towns and communities as well as developers to be able to increase the amount of, of development. It doesn't feel like we're uh, pushing on all fronts uh, to be able to really uh, increase the amount of development that needs to happen in the state. Under the Malloy administration, uh, the Connecticut Mirror reported that the private sector has invested about $2 billion in new affordable housing developments since 2013. But when we think about those developments, they're mixed income, mixed use developments, uh, also includes market rate units. And so there's a limit of how many of those units can be affordable, Fanula. Right. And I think also a lot of that affordable housing development has really focused on studio apartments, one-bedroom apartments and even two-bedroom apartments in some cases. Um, And that does not address some of the chronic homelessness that we have seen in the state and specifically family homelessness. Furthermore, it doesn't address some of the systemic housing discrimination we see. Um, Discrimination based on familial status is extremely high. So even if there's less units available to house a family plus a barrier of housing discrimination, Ending familial homelessness is going to be to continue to be a challenge. And so that affordable housing development has not been necessarily geared for families. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Sherry is calling from Plainville. Sherry, go ahead with your comment or question. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Hi. Um, I am a landlord in New Britain and has been for about the past seven years. And... The main issue that we see, New Britain is probably the cheapest housing in the whole state of Connecticut. You can get a two-bedroom apartment for $850 a month, which a household with two adults working full-time minimum wage can afford. But the problem that we have seen with the agencies that assist people who are homeless in getting rehoused is that inevitably the people who they are bringing have mental health issues that have caused the homelessness in the first place. And always, within a year of them moving in, they have problems that cause us to have to evict them. They stop paying the rent and the agency is gone. They menace the other residents of the multifamily building and we have to evict them. They menace us, and we have to evict them. To the point where we idealistically have have said for many years, yes, we need to work with these agencies, we need to help with this, but we've gotten to the point where we've realized since every single time, mental health or personality issues have made it impossible to house these people. And they're all, they all have, they're all families because we don't have any units that are smaller than two bedrooms, and most of our units are three and four bedrooms. Well, Sherry, what, um, so what's your question for our guests? Uh, do you think that that kind of assistance that uh, gets a tenant there in the first place needs to continue longer? Yes. We need the agency to be there providing um, services for the tenant. Basically, they're going to need it for the rest of their tenancies. Because they they lose their housing. The reason they lost their housing in the first place was because of their 
mental health or personality issues or their criminal behavior. Well, Sherry, I want to give our guests a chance to respond uh, to uh, what you have said. Uh, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, Sherry, I'm, I'm sorry that, that that has been your experience. Um, you know, what we've been trying to set up uh, in, in Connecticut with all the nonprofits that we're partnering with uh, is where, um, in some cases, we are helping families to find housing on the private market and work with landlords such as yourself uh, to help them get into housing. Uh, the goal is not to um, drop them off and then um, say goodbye and never leave uh, and never say, uh, you know, check in again. Um, there really should be a connection uh, so that uh, if that uh, individual or family is actually um, experiencing a crisis again, they know how to call uh, and get uh, connected back to the community. Again, there's no way to force uh, people to do that, but um, on a voluntary basis. Uh, but also where we pride our relationship with landlords such that we want to make sure that there is a number to call um, if you do are experiencing those situations. So it doesn't have to get to an eviction, uh, but we can help uh, resolve those situations, either um, help with rent arrears or help with money management or what, what um, or provide more mental health services if that is the case. But I want to be clear, you know, that uh, not everybody experiencing homelessness does have those mental health issues. Uh, and so I don't want to uh, paint a picture where we're saying everybody who's experiencing homelessness um, has a mental health issue. Many, many of them don't. But for those that do, I think it is critical that we connect them with mental health services. And that is the model that we're trying to create. If that's not what's happening, I certainly would love to know about it. Uh, Fanula Darby Hudgens is also here with us, uh, besides Richard Cho, who we just heard. You're with the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. When we hear about evictions, uh, can you talk through um, how detrimental that is to get to that point uh, for the tenant as well as as the landlord and um, you know, ways to uh, provide people with stable housing no matter their circumstance? Right. So in Connecticut and across the country, and as Matthew Desmond um, so beautifully illustrated in his book, Evicted, um, evictions disproportionately affect female-headed households of color. Um, Evictions are disproportionately in our divested urban cores. Um, And so the eviction... The way housing discrimination works that leads to eviction, eviction is a systemic cause of homelessness. And eviction is directly a systemic cause of housing discrimination. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, how zoning laws are keeping more affordable units from being built or available in the state. So what can be done, uh, Fanula? We only have about five minutes, but this is an important topic that we wanted to talk about. Sure. Um, in our office, in our little uh, fair housing world, I am known as the person who believes we can change hearts and minds. Um, and so I believe really quality community education and really quality outreach efforts can inform our work. I also believe strongly in legislative advocacy. Um, we worked really hard um, pushing an, exclu- an inclusionary zoning bill through um, session last year. I think we'll see that bill come up again this year. We have the Legislative Fair Housing Task Force working on this. We have the Affordable Housing Task Force in New Haven. We have the Reentry Task Force, which just closed, and we'll have legislative recommendations. So I think the work is happening, and I think we can continue to do so. And I think outreach really needs to inform our efforts. I was in the greater Stanford area last weekend, and I learned that it is impossible for uh, low- and moderate-income families to get year-long leases. And really, the reason for that is rapid gentrification, um, which is a result of exclusionary zoning, right? So as a result of gentrification, landlords are quickly raising rents and they don't want 12-month leases because they can't raise the rents. And then these families can no longer afford their housing. So they're evicted for lapse of time or they're evicted because their lease has come done. You mentioned inclusionary uh, zoning law that that, uh, did not go through the General Assembly last year. And why is that? Is there a portion of of, uh, communities that have the NIMBYism that they don't want these units in their town? Absolutely. 
Yes, <laughs> absolutely. To answer your question simply, yes, the NIMBYism is um, extremely prevalent across the state, um, un- unfortunately. And I think that it really is a result of our own implicit biases, our own fears, um, and our systemic segregation. If we don't work to integrate our communities, we're never going to undo some of our own implicit biases. Uh, Richard Cho, again, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, but how, as a, in your new role as a CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness, how do you tackle uh, these barriers that still remain in Connecticut? I think uh, what Fanula was mentioning, just in terms of education, I think we have a lot of work to do to try to destigmatize uh, poverty and and homelessness, um, and help people understand what the face of homelessness is like. So that's 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 certainly part of it, uh, and to also help communities understand that affordable housing, supportive housing, these kind of resources are an asset to the community. They actually help, and to take them to um, show them examples of supportive housing and affordable housing developments that have been effective and transformative for communities and neighborhoods. Uh, and that actually contribute to economic growth. That's I think that's a big part of it. The other thing I want to say is just you know we we uh, have done a lot in the homelessness service system to try to streamline and create a centralized point of access for services and understand how to um, deliver um, housing assistance in a more efficient way. Um, the affordable housing sector in and of itself doesn't have that. Uh, there, there's a long way to go to even know how many units we have, where they are, and how people apply. There's still uh, people still have to apply to many different. Uh, programs, waiting lists uh, to uh, obtain affordable housing. I think we need to create the same kind of uh, coordinated system on the affordable housing side as we have done for homeless assistance. Well, I want to thank Dr. Richard Cho again, who's the new leader at the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Also, Fanula Darby-Hudgens, uh, Community Education and Outreach Coordinator for the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. We'll talk about this again. We hope to have you back. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to, to Kayone Wolf and Lydia Brown. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>